like to follow. <laughs> Thank you so much for finding that great video, Chaz. Uh, that was awesome. And again, happy Mother's Day to, uh, to all the, the moms here. We, uh, we love you, we're grateful for you, and uh, pray that this is a blessed, uh, blessed day for each of you. You know, Mother's Day has taken on uh, a whole new light in our family uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, some of you may know our family story, and I'm sure many of you don't, but two years ago, my wife, Kim, uh, who's right here in, our, in the front row with me, uh, was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer and uh, sent our family into a whole uh, whirlwind of uh, very just difficult period where for uh, about a year and a half we were fighting that cancer. She spent uh, two summers ago, we were just talking about this this last week, uh, two summers ago she had just started chemotherapy and, uh, this past week and uh, spent three months over the summer uh, doing her chemo treatments and then uh, later that fall had surgery and then basically spent a couple months of the next winter doing radiation. So uh, it was a long, very difficult uh, period for our family and uh, learned a lot of hard lessons in the midst of, of uh, those, those trials that the Lord allowed us to go through. But I'm uh, extremely thankful that my wife is here. And like I said, Mother's Day is actually special for us uh, at this point. And as I was thinking about that experience, though, and everything that uh, we had faced in that uh, that period of trial, it just really made me uh, reflect this past week on the reality that you know a lot of us experience difficulties in life that we never expected, that we certainly didn't sign up for. And uh, you know, my wife and I, we got married at 28 years old, and I can guarantee you at 28, when we got married and we're looking ahead to our future, we didn't expect 10 years down the road to be going through one of the most difficult trials that, that you can face. And life is like that, you know, life will throw this curveball at you. And of course we know that nothing happens outside of God's sovereign will and plans for our lives, but, but even that knowledge doesn't necessarily make those trials and hardships that, that easier to accept, you know? I mean, we still wrestle with questions, we wrestle with doubts, we wrestle with discouragement, we wonder, you know, God, what are you doing here? You know, is this, is this really your plan? And I remember even as a family going through that cancer battle two years ago, how so often, you know, we would just struggle with questions like, God, is this really your plan for us? You know, God, don't, don't you realize, like, I love my wife, I mean, we've got a great marriage, we've got, you know, we're, we're trying to be good parents, we've got a great family, Lord, what, what are you doing here? And Jesus, I, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm trying to serve you, Lord. I mean, like of all the people in the world to, to put this burden on, why, why us? And I think a lot of us have had those periods of doubt, those periods of questioning, those periods of discouragement, when just life doesn't seem to make sense. You know, a lot of us in this room have dealt with some hard things. I'm sure there are many in this room who never thought, you know, I'm going to be facing a divorce one day. There's a lot of us in this room who've never, you know, expected to be diagnosed with the disease that you're facing. A lot of us in this room who never expected to lose a child. A lot of us who never expected to wrestle with difficulties in our jobs and finances. But the reality is, is life doesn't always go as we expect it to go. And we face trials, and we face hardships, and we face discouragements. And, and for Christians especially, we we 
end up in these places where we sometimes question God. And we even doubt God. In fact, I'll tell you something that's been very interesting as a pastor, one of the most common questions I hear from people. One of the most common questions I hear from people as a pastor when they come in for counseling or just sharing what's going on in their life, they'll say, Jason, is it okay for me to have doubts? Is it okay for me to question what God's doing right now? You know, because again, I think for a lot of us, we love God, we, we know God loves us, we know He has a plan and purpose, and, and, but the thing is, is it's one thing to know that cognitively, intellectually, it's another thing to like feel in your guts when you're in the midst of the burdens of life. And so we ask these hard questions, we wrestle with these doubts. Well, this morning, I want us to take a look at a story that comes from our past next section in Luke, chapter 7. It's a story of a man who was very close to Jesus, and yet he wrestled with doubts and discouragement. He questioned God's will and God's plans. And we're going to find in his story some principles that I think can help us as well as we go through our own seasons. Now here's the deal. I know that there are people in this room right now who are in the midst of your own seasons of doubt and discouragement. I know you're here this morning, and I've been praying all week that, that this message might be an encouragement to you. And I, and I also know that there are some people in this room this morning, maybe some younger folks in this room who are thinking, what's he talking about? Doubt, discouragement, seasons of questioning, like, like you haven't been there yet. And, and, and right now, you can't even like necessarily envision being there, but the reality is there will come a day in all of our lives, friends, I'm telling you, where you are going to go through some very hard things. And my hope and my prayer for you is that you'll take the message that I'm sharing this morning, take it to heart, root it down deeply in your spirit, and, and store it away, because someday when you need it, the truths that I'm going to share this morning, I've really been praying, will be an encouragement to you, as they've been an encouragement to me, as I've gone through my own trials and, and, and periods of doubt and questioning. So the passage we're going to look at this morning is from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. I want to read the passage together, and then I'll come back and just share some observations about it with us so that it sort of makes a little more sense to us before we begin to apply the principles here to our lives. So John, this is John the Baptist, John the Baptist's disciples told him about all of these things. What are all of these things? It's all the stuff we've been talking about for like the last four weeks, right? Jesus' great teaching, the miracles, healing lepers, healing blind people, healing, right? Jesus has been doing all these miracles. And so John the Baptist gets wind of this stuff. He hears about all the stuff that Jesus is doing. And so John calls two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who are who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Very interesting passage here. Now to help us understand what's going on, we, we need to understand the context of where 
these questions come from. When John sends these disciples with this question to Jesus, are, are you really the one we should be expecting, right? What's the context? You need to understand, friends, when John wrote this passage, when he sent this message to Jesus, John was languishing in a place called the Fortress of Machaerus. John spent the last two years of his life chained up in the dungeon of the Fortress of Machaerus. Machaerus, which sits in the southeastern corner of ancient Israel, in present-day Jordan, is in one of the most desolate places in the world. John was not housed where they have the nice little swimming pool there, if you see in the diagram. He would have been housed in one of the towers there where the dungeons were. And if John even had a window in his prison cell where he was chained up, that window was a tiny slit in the concrete that he may have been able to see out and look out the window to see nothing but miles and miles of desolate wilderness. This is one of the hottest places on earth, friends. And imagine John the Baptist spending two years chained up in Dungeon of Machaerus in one of the hottest places in the world, stewing in his own sweat and filth. If he gets a shower, it's maybe once a week, and it's a bucket of water that the guards throw on him through the door. And here's John the Baptist, who had been prophesied by God as to the one who would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And here's John the Baptist, the one who just a couple years earlier had baptized Jesus, the one he thought was the Messiah. And here is John, chained up in Machaerus, wondering, when's the Messiah going to do all the stuff the Messiah is supposed to do? I mean, the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to conquer our adversaries. He was going to liberate us from our oppressors. He was going to break the chains. Where is Jesus? Where is my rescue? What am I doing sitting in this dungeon? God, this really can't be your plan for my life. I know this can't be your plan for my life because I, I was the prophesied one. I was the forerunner of the Messiah. What are you doing, God, with me chained up in this dungeon? Jesus and I were tight, God. Remember, I mean, we're cousins, and I baptized him. We're like this. So where is he? Where's the rescue? Where's the promised one? And John was wrestling with these doubts. And so he asked Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for, or should we expect someone else? Maybe this isn't really the guy. Maybe I made a mistake here. Maybe this really isn't the promised one. Jesus, should we expect somebody else? Because this sure doesn't look like the plan that I was anticipating. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever spent time in your years? You know what I'm saying? I think a lot of us have spent time in that dungeon, chained to the wall, wondering, God, what are you doing? Is this really your plan for my life? Here's the question I want to address today. How do we survive Macaris? How do we make it through those times in life when we're wrestling with doubt and uncertainty? But more than that, is it possible to not only survive, but even thrive when doing time in the cares? 
It is possible to overcome the seasons of doubt and discouragement in our lives. Friends, I think the answer is absolutely, absolutely this. If we understand our God and understand his promises. I want to share with you this morning three principles from this passage that we just read. Three principles for thriving in the cares. Thriving in the midst of those seasons of doubt in our lives. Principle number one I want to share with you this morning is this. To thrive in the cares, you need to embrace expectancy. You need to embrace expectancy. Now here's the deal. John the Baptist, his problem wasn't that he was chained up in a dungeon. Okay, like, like from the outside, that looked like the problem. Like, you're in a dungeon, dude. That's, that's like not where you want to be. But that wasn't John's problem. What was John's real problem? John's real problem was that his expectancy had shifted to expectation. His expectancy had turned to expectation. Friends, did you know that there is a huge difference this morning between expectancy and expectation. It's a huge difference. And it makes all the difference. You see, expectancy is the conviction that no matter what comes into your life, God is for you and you can trust Him because He has a perfect plan in everything. Expectation, on the other hand, is the opposite of expectancy. Expectation says, God owes me. I deserve better than this. I'm entitled to more than this, God. There's a huge difference between expectancy and expectation. And you need to understand, friends, John the Baptist, he had started his ministry with expectancy. I mean, he was fired up. Look at what Luke 3, 15 through 16 tells us. When John started his ministry, the people were waiting expectantly and we're all wondering in our hearts if John might possibly be the Christ, the Messiah. But John answered them all. He said, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals are not worthy to untie, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Back in the day, John was like, look it, I'm not the guy. The guy is coming, and when he comes, man, wait and see what happens when he shows up, because he's going to baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. It's going to change everything. And then later on in Luke 3, John goes on and he says, not like that, he's got his winnowing fork, and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, and you better believe he's going to burn it up. All the enemies of God, they're done. They're gone. They're going to be burned up in the fire when that guy shows up. And now just a couple years later here in verse 19, that same guy is saying, maybe we should expect some more. You really the guy, Jesus? Should we expect someone else? John's expectancy had turned to expectation. And here's the thing, friends, you need to understand this. Macaris is a really tough place to be. And your expectancy gives way to expectation. Reality is if you're a person of expectancy, that makes all the difference in the world. If you're a person of expectancy, you're going to see God's hand in everything. And I tell you something, that changes everything. An attitude of expectancy says, I may not like this, 
I may, I may not even want this or think this is good, but, but God, you are in this, and God, you are for me, and I'm going to trust you. And that attitude of expectancy changes everything. I remember six years ago when my father passed away, 61 years old, wholly unexpected. My mom and dad were up at our family cabin up near Hayward, Wisconsin, and my dad, they had been out on the boat all afternoon. My dad had gotten in to take a little nap right before dinner, and 10 minutes later, my mom walked in, and my dad was gone. And I remember my mom called me frantically, crying on the phone, Jason, they just took your dad in the ambulance, and I dropped everything. I got my truck and started driving up north to Hayward. I got halfway there. Get a phone call from the doctor at Spooner at the emergency room. He said, Is this Jason? I said, Yeah. He said, Jason, can you pull over for a minute? And I didn't even need to pull over. He just said, I just said, My dad's gone. I spent the next hour crying my way to the I remember that evening as my mom and brother and I sat in the living room of our cabin. Crying and just asking the Lord, why? What are you doing here? I mean, my dad was, she literally, days earlier, had had a physical. The doctor said, clean bill of health, you're good to go. Just on the verge of his retirement, looking forward to celebrating his retirement, spending time with his grandkids. And we're just saying, you know, Lord, this, what are you doing? This can't be And I'll tell you something, my mom, she's, she's one of my heroes. My mom, in the midst of our tears and sadness, my mom, she's the one who stood up and she said, boys, we need to trust that God has a plan. Even though we don't understand, we've got to trust that God has a plan. That was my mom, speaking to her two boys who are both pastors. <laughs> but you know, like that word, that simple word of faith encouraged us, buoyed our spirits, gave us hope, reminded us of the promises that we've preached a thousand times. God loves us. We can trust him. See, friends, the life that embraces expectancy is the life that's going to be characterized by hope. It's a life of wonder and amazement as you live in anticipation of seeing God's unfolding plans. The life of expectancy says, wow, God, I can't wait to see what you're going to do next. God, I may not understand this. I may not get this. I may not even like this. But you know what, God, I'm going to trust you. I know you're good. I know you're faithful. See, expectancy looks at life's obstacles and sees God's opportunities. Expectancy takes our pains and looks to God's promises. Expectancy encounters trials and trusts God for triumphs. An attitude of expectancy changes everything. But if you're a person whose life is characterized by expectation, let me tell you, friend, I can guarantee you, you're setting yourself up for a life of doubt, disappointment, and despair. And you're going to see your passion for God begin to shrivel up. Because you're going to feel like you've always been cheated. But you haven't. Because God loves you. And has a plan in everything. So let me ask you this morning, which is it? Are you a person of expectancy or expectation? Because when you're doing time in the Karis, when you're in those seasons of doubt, the right outlook changes everything. So 
So we embrace expectancy. The second thing we see in our passage this morning is we need to hold on to our hope. We need to hold on to our hope. Now I want you to notice, what was Jesus' response when he saw that John's expectancy had turned to expectation? Right? Are you really the Messiah, Jesus, or should we expect someone else? What was Jesus' response? His response was twofold. Number one, he showed them evidence. And number two, he pointed them to Scripture. Jesus, are you the one or should we expect somebody else? Look, 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 what does Luke say here? This is, I, love this, I love this verse. Look at, look at verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, evil spirits. At that very time. Jesus, should we expect someone else? Now, now Luke doesn't tell us what does the at that very time mean. Was that like, I mean, was that like a rapid fire machine gun of miracles? Hey, should we expect somebody else? Hold on a second. Blind guy, see. Lame guy, walk. Leper, you're healed. Hey, dead guy, get up. Hey, sick guy, you're healed. Right? Hey, demon possessed dude. God. Right? Was it just like boom, 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 boom? Mic drop? <laughs> or was it more like, hey, just, why don't you guys hang out with me for a couple of days? And just follow and see what happens. I'm going to heal this leper over here. And we're going to go over here and we're going to heal this blind guy. We're going to touch this guy's ears. He's going to hear for the first time in his life. We, we don't know. I mean, it's kind of interesting to think about at that very time, Jesus. Jesus displays the power of the Messiah. And then, what does Jesus say to these messengers from John? Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Friends, Jesus wasn't just taking a bunch of random statements here. What was he doing? First, he does miracles to prove that he's the Messiah, and then he points them to Scripture. Every single one of these statements are quotes from Messianic prophecies in the book of Isaiah. John the Baptist's followers would have known that. He wasn't just pulling out random words. Jesus was using six specific references from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 61 and elsewhere, where the Messiah is prophesied that he's going to come, he's going to open blind eyes, he's going to unstop deaf ears, he's going to raise the dead, right? All of these things were promises that God had made hundreds of years earlier that he said the Messiah would fulfill. So Jesus is basically looking, you want to know if I'm the one or if you should be expecting someone else? Well, I'm going to go heal a bunch of people right in front of you, and then I'm going to quote the scriptures that you know that confirm what you've just seen me do, and now go back and tell John what you've just seen. Should you expect somebody else? Come on. The same pattern applies to us today, friends. When we're in our seasons of doubt, when we're in our seasons of discouragement, just like Jesus told these disciples of John, watch what I'm going to do. Look at the evidence, and then go to the Lord. The same pattern applies to us. How do we hold on to hope in the midst of our seasons of doubt? We look at the evidence. In other words, we all need reminders once in a while, right? We need reminders. Is this stuff legit? Is Jesus really who we claim to be? Can we really trust him? And then we need to look to the Word. What has God revealed about himself to us that can sustain us through our seasons of doubt? discouragement. You know, 
when you think about looking to the evidence, you know, for me, I'll tell you something. I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. The reason I'm here preaching this morning and not nursing a hangover somewhere, I just cannot shake the conviction that all this stuff is true. I can't shake the conviction that everything that this book proclaims is the absolute truth from God. And so no matter what trials and discouragements I face in my life, at the end of the day, I keep coming back to the fact that, like, this is so true that I cannot, I could never abandon this. I can't, I can't give it up. Because no matter how my limited, finite perspective sees the events in my life, the reality is I am so convinced that this is real and true that there's no way I would abandon it for anything else. This is hope. This is life right here. And it's the evidence, friends, it's the evidence that Christianity is true that, that sustains me in my seasons of doubt. Well, you know, I love apologetics, right? What is apologetics? It's giving a defense of the faith. Why we believe what we believe? Right? Do we have valid reasons to believe this stuff? Or is it just some man-made fairy tale? No, this is the real deal. This is legit. Jesus is the Messiah. The Bible is the word of God. We can trust it. I was speaking out in Seattle two weeks ago. At a, at a large apologetic conference, one of the speakers there was uh, William Lane Craig. He's the world's leading Christian philosopher. He's debated the top skeptics and atheists all over the world. I mean, if you Google search his name, you'll find, I mean, just trust me, he is the guy when it comes to apologetics and philosophy. William Lane Craig shared with me in Seattle, I asked him at dinner one night, I said, what do you find is the number one argument against Christianity today on university campuses? He said, well, you're going to be surprised by this, Jason, but he said, when I do debates with people today about the histority, historicity of Jesus Christ, he said, the most common argument I hear is that Jesus never really rose from the grave, that that was a made-up story. And I asked him, I said, well, how do they justify that? You want to know what the number one justification to dispel the resurrection is today on university campuses? The number one argument against the resurrection today is that Jesus' body was just taken off the cross and thrown in the local garbage dump and probably eaten by wild dogs. No resurrection. No living Savior. He died on a cross like an ordinary criminal. They threw him in the local garbage dump like an ordinary criminal. The wild dogs that lived in the dump probably ate the body. And the whole story was just made up. Friends, what a bunch of baloney. Are you kidding me? You read 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul gives us the list of eyewitnesses who saw the risen Savior with their own eyes. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that there was one setting alone where over 500 people saw Jesus all at once, all at the same time. Now Paul in the ancient world 2,000 years ago, they didn't include women in their numerical counts. So when Paul says 500 brothers saw Jesus at one time, he was talking about a church service, and that means that there were probably, like any normal church, an equal number of women and children present as well. So now we're talking not just about 500 eyewitnesses, we're talking about upwards of 1,000 eyewitnesses who were in the same room all at once and saw Jesus resurrected. Friends, how did the story of the resurrection grow and spread like a wildfire in the first century? In a hostile culture, an anti-Christian culture. The Jews didn't want the church to grow. The Romans didn't want the church to grow. They had nothing to gain. They had everything to lose. And yet history tells us that the church spread like a wildfire. How'd that happen? 
It happened only because there were so many people who had seen Jesus alive with their own eyes, they couldn't deny it anymore. They couldn't deny the story. He wasn't thrown in a garbage dump. Are you kidding me? You could have just gotten down to the dump, pulled his body out, look, and here's the dead Messiah. But no, there were over a thousand eyewitnesses walking around Jerusalem. You want to hear something that blow your mind? Historians tell us that ancient Jerusalem in the first century had somewhere in the ballpark of 40,000 to 80,000 citizens. That means, friends, that one out of 40 or one out of 80 at most living in Jerusalem had seen Jesus alive after his resurrection. If Paul's account is true that 1,000 people saw him with their own eyes in one setting. Can you imagine that? One out of 40 people walking around, I saw Jesus. This would be like going to downtown Lindstrom, and you walk into the coffee shop, and John's at the coffee shop, Jason, you're never going to believe what I just saw. Jesus is alive. Oh, you're crazy. But then you walk over to Wally's, and you go down to Wally's, and the guy at the cash register says, Jason, you're never going to believe what I just saw. My brother, he told me he saw Jesus. And I thought he was crazy, but I went over to Bricks, and sure enough, I saw Jesus too. He's alive. He's walking around. Right? And you just kept bumping into people over and over again who saw Jesus. This is how the resurrection story spread. It spread because there were too many eyewitnesses. This wasn't made up. This was true, friends. Why do I trust God's promises in the midst of my seasons of doubt and discouragement? It's because I can't shake the conviction that the evidence for this is there, and it's real, and it's trustworthy and reliable. God is real. The Messiah came to earth 2,000 years ago. He died on a cross. He really rose from the grave. These books are accurate historical accounts of his life. They are trustworthy, and they are true, and you can take that to the bank. And so we look to the evidence, but then we look to the Word of God. And we look to the truths and the promises of God's Word. Psalm 119, 105, your Word is a lamp unto my feet. And a light unto my path. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God and is useful for teaching, correcting, reproof, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Friends, if all of this is true about the word of God, when we open it up, when we read its promises, we are reading the living, breathing truth of the Lord given to us to encourage us and to sustain us in our times of despair and doubt. And so you need to go to the Word. Now some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense, Jason. You're telling me if I'm doubting God's promises, I need to read God's promises. That's what I'm telling you. If you doubt God's promises, put it to the test. Get it off your shelf, take a look at it, see if they're true. All right, now moms, it's just like this, all right? Imagine today, Mother's Day, some of you guys got some presents or gifts or something, right? Imagine that Mother's Day today that your kids got you a brand new cookbook, right? Your kids get you a brand new cookbook, and the title of the cookbook, World's Greatest Casserole Recipes. And you're looking at this cookbook, oh, well, that's ridiculous. World's Greatest Casserole Recipes. You put it up on your shelf, and you just leave it there and ignore it. But you know what? Every once in a while, you kind of glance over that and you think, hmm, world's greatest casserole recipe. I wonder. Ah, no way. Right? How are you going to know if that really is the book with the world's greatest casserole recipes? 
encouragement and sustenance, and those times of despair and doubt. But if it's not, we'll throw it away. But here's the deal. I'm convinced that when you face your trials in life, that God's word will give you encouragement and hope that you need. But you got to take it off the shelf. you got to put it to the test. It's going to go to you know, well, Jason, you know, I don't, I don't really believe God's promises. I'm really wrestling. I'm struggling with doubt. I'm struggling. Can I really trust God? Well, have you looked to the word? Well, no, I haven't read my Bible in years. Okay. Open it up. Read the word. That's where God's hope is found. Lastly, this morning, be humble. Don't stumble. Be humble. Don't stumble. Verse 23, Jesus said, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now, friends, that's a very odd statement, right? What's he getting at? Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But what's Jesus getting at here? Understand this, friends. God doesn't always show up in the way we expect. That's what Jesus is saying. Blessed is the man who does not fall away out of economy. Look at God's not always going to show up the way you expect him to show up. The Israelites, they didn't want a carpenter from Nazareth. They wanted a conquering king. Right? John the Baptist, he didn't want his Messiah to come along proclaiming, hey, if somebody strikes you, turn the other cheek. He wanted a Messiah who was going to say, look at dude, I'm going to kick you in the cheeks. Right? Like, like, God doesn't always come in the way we expect him to come. And so the Israelites and John the Baptist, they wanted a Messiah that fit their preconceived image. They wanted a Messiah that conformed to their role. A Messiah who, who would meet their needs and their desires. And because of that, a lot of them ended up stumbling over Jesus. A lot of them fell away because Jesus wasn't what they were expecting. And Jesus says, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Look, I may not be what you were expecting. But this is reality. This is the truth. Do you trust me? And see, here's the thing, friends. We do the same thing today that the Jews and John the Baptist did. We, we do the very same things. God wouldn't judge me. The God I believe in is a God of love. Jesus can't be the only way to God. My God accepts all religions. Oh, God doesn't care who I sleep with. My God wants me to be happy. Friends, you can make your God into whatever image you want. But understand this, you're just playing make-believe. You can fashion a God any way you want, but you're just playing make-believe. It's like my buddy Caleb here, my son Caleb. One of my son's favorite activities, he likes taking old cardboard boxes, and he turns them into cars and spaceships, and you know he cuts out holes and draws on them and paints them, right? The other couple weeks ago, he had a cardboard box. He made it into a John Deere Gator. You know, ATV. He's out in the garage riding his John Deere Gator, right? Says John Deere Gator on it. It's got all the knobs and whistles on it, right? Friends, he can call that a John Deere Gator all he wants. It's not going to change the fact it's still a cardboard box. See, friends, the only thing that matters is what is real and what is true and whether or not we're willing to humble ourselves to embrace it. That's what it all comes down to. Jesus said, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Are you going to humble yourself before him? Or will you stumble before him? How you answer that question is going to make all the difference when you're in time in the cares. When you're facing life seasons of doubt and discouragement.
See, here, here's the deal. Humbling yourself before Jesus is about recognizing that Jesus may not be what you want, but he is what you need. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. Now here's the deal. You may not like that plan. You might wish there were 10, 12 different roads to God that all religions are based. You can wish anything you want. It doesn't matter. What matters is what is true. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. Acts 4.12, there's no other name given under heaven whereby men can be saved except the name of Jesus. You can believe anything you want, but that doesn't matter. What matters is what is true, the way things really are. And God in human flesh, who came to reveal truth to us, has said, this is the way it is. So are you going to humble yourself before Jesus, or are you going to stumble upon him? Humbling yourself before Jesus is also about recognizing that his plans might be hard to get, but they're always good. I guarantee you, friends, you're not always going to understand what God's doing with my life. You're not always going to understand why my marriage won't. You know, I was going to understand, Lord, why did you allow my child to die? Lord, why am I found a job? You're not always going to understand God's plans, but I can promise you, friends, they are always good because it's a faithful God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 28, what an awesome promise. We know in all things, in all things, in all things, God works for the good. Not some things, in all things. And so we trust in those promises. We hold on to that hope. And we humble ourselves before Jesus, even when it doesn't make sense, because we know He loves us. We know He's faithful. We know He's good. The next time you find yourself in those seasons of doubt, friends, some of you might be in that dungeon in the carrots right here today. I, I, I'm sure of it. And others of you are going to get there. And those seasons of doubt arrive. Embrace expectancy. Hold on to hope. And humble yourself before the Lord. And He will sustain you and encourage you and get you through those seasons of doubt this morning. Let me word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this terrific passage from the book of Luke this morning. I thank you for allowing us to see this testimony of John the Baptist, even this faithful man of God who wrestled with doubts. And Lord, I thank you for that example. And I pray, Jesus, that the response that you gave to John would also be an encouragement to us. That we might look at you with expectancy, Lord, not expectation. That we might hold on to the hope that we have in our faith, Lord, the promises of your word, the evidence of your truth. And Lord, that we might ultimately humble ourselves before and trust in you, even though we don't always understand, but we can be confident that you love us and you are good. God, I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who's struggling with doubt and discouragement today, God, would you draw near to them this morning? Would you encourage them and lift their spirits? I pray this in Jesus' name. Would you stand?